Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. It's a tricky thing when you use the same word, but you have different definitions. Same word, different, different definitions. Let me give you an example. Uh, upon moving to New England, I've had to learn some whole new words, but then just the new definitions that go with old words. For example, in every coffee shop in America, every coffee shop in America outside of New England, if you walk in and you order coffee regular, you will be given a cup of black coffee, because guess what? That's what regular coffee is. Coffee is black coffee. But you know how this goes. You walk into Dunkin' and you say, I want a coffee regular. You will get a gallon of heavy whipping cream, five pounds of sugar, and two drops of coffee. That's not coffee. I don't know what that is. It's it's something very different, but different definitions for the same words. We've got the same thing that happens in Scripture and in our lives. Uh, we use the word great or greatness or greatest. We use it in one way in our culture, in our world. We use it a different way in the Bible. Greatness looks different from outside the Bible compared to within the Bible. If I were to ask you, who's the greatest actress or actor of all time, how would you measure that? You might count up Oscars, okay? The person with the most Oscars is the greatest. If I were to ask you the greatest musician of all time, you might count Grammys. We might look at any number of metrics, uh, wealth. We might look at uh, position or title or office, uh, number of social media followers. These are all things that in our world define greatness. Did you know that in the Bible, everyone who lives their life according to the world's definition of greatness, is a complete and total failure in the eyes of God. Worldly greatness does not equate to godly greatness or spiritual greatness. Now, to be sure, in the Bible, we have people who by worldly standards are great. They have wealth. They have power. But that's not what ultimately made them great. What made some of these men and women great was their obedience to God, their trust in Him. They didn't let the worldly trappings of greatness confuse them from walking in trust and obedience to the Lord. What are you great at? What are you the greatest at, better than the average person? I, I thought about this for myself this week, and I, I came up with a clear answer. Here's what I'm great at. I'm great at using YouTube videos to save money on home repairs, I may put my family in great peril, but if I save five bucks, that's all that matters, right? Tom Brady is the goat, the greatest of all time. I'm the coat, the cheapest of all time. That's my title, and I'm proud of it. Christians are to be great people. Christian churches are to be great churches, but not great according to the world standards, great in the way Christ has defined greatness. Great in the path that the Lord has set forward for us. And that's what we need to wrap our minds around this morning. What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? Now, we're continuing in our study of the gospel of Mark. In verse 33, we pick up in a place where greatness is on display. Uh, there is a great amount of misunderstanding about what greatness looks like, and Jesus takes the time to show his disciples and to show these disciples, us right here, what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. So here's my goal today with our passage. My goal is to clarify what Christian greatness looks like 
And with that clarification ought to come life change on your part. We're going to change our definition. We're going to change our thinking. And the proof or evidence of that change will be in the way you and I lead our lives. It's changing our thinking so that we would live in a different way. And the reality is this. You've got to be ready because this passage, it's hard-hitting. And we may have some people in this room today who are great by worldly standards, but friend, you are a total failure in the eyes of God. You have popularity, reputation, wealth, achievement, all these things. But what matters at the end of the day is what does God think of you? So this passage may come with a little bit of a sting, but know this, there is grace in the sting. And your first step on the road to greatness in the eyes of God comes with feeling that sting and responding in faith to Jesus Christ. So I want you to follow along with me as I read. In our passage today, I'm going to show you four components of Christian greatness And uh, our passage starts in verse 33, but actually I'm going to start reading in verse 30. So follow along with me. Mark chapter 9, I'm going to start in verse 30. It says, They, the they there are Jesus and his disciples, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. It's a fascinating passage. I started reading in verse 30 because it's so important that we get verse 31 into our thinking this morning. Jesus has predicted now for the second time His coming death and resurrection. 
But the disciples have no frame of reference for understanding this resurrection. When Jesus says, I'll rise in three days, that doesn't compute. Now, they have a concept of resurrection in their theology, but that comes at the end of times, when God comes and sets everything right once and for all. So when Jesus says, I'll rise in three days, they they can't understand. And they're embarrassed by their ignorance on this point. And so they don't talk. They don't ask clarifying questions. And when they do talk, stupid comes out. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus has just said, I'm going to die. And three days later, rise again. And now they begin to bicker about which of them is going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. So Jesus responds by gathering them together. Verse 35 tells us, they, or they're in Capernaum. That's the town that is Jesus' home base for his ministry. They're in a house, probably Peter's house. They've been in this setting multiple times in the Gospel of Mark. Verse 35 says, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve. Sitting down is not in response to tired legs. Sitting down in the first century in Jesus' culture is the posture of a teacher. The teacher didn't stand and pace and do weird things with his hands. The teacher sat and taught. So school's in session here in chapter 9. Jesus sits down, gets the disciples, and in response to their silly argument about greatness, Jesus teaches them what true greatness in the kingdom of God really looks like. That's what I want to give you this morning, four components of Christian greatness. The first of those components is this. It is downward servanthood. If you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, friend, you have to practice, you have to live downward servanthood. Verses 33 through 37 spell this out for us. So Jesus tells his disciples in verse 35, he sits down, he gathers them in response to their nonsense talk about greatness. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. As we've already talked about a little bit this morning, Jesus defines greatness so very different than we do, so very different than the world does. His definition of greatness does not match with the first century world's definition of greatness and sure doesn't match with our modern definitions of greatness. You see, in the kingdom of God, if you're going to be great, if you're going to be number one, you're going to be the best, you've got to be last. You've got to lower yourself. You have to live your life on a downward trajectory for the sake of others. Jesus put it this way in an earlier teaching segment. If anyone's going to follow after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is the path of Christian greatness. It is to follow in the way of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just expect us to beat ourselves up, to hate ourselves, to talk bad about ourselves. That's not what he's describing here. He's describing a way of living that mirrors the cross that he himself goes to. There's a reason why verse 31 is so important to understanding what follows. Because it it gives us the framework for understanding what downward servanthood looks like. Jesus doesn't just tell us to do something that he himself hasn't done. He has done it in the extreme, in the greatest possible way. Laid down his life for the sake of our salvation. He goes to the cross. And he tells you and I to take up our cross and to follow. If we're going to be great, if you're going to be first, you have to be a servant of all. Greatness isn't achieved in the Christian life. Greatness is granted. God decides. 
You don't have a checklist that you just do, and then all of a sudden, there you are at the land of greatness. God grants it to those who lower themselves and live for the sake of the other as a servant for all. Now, just so that the disciples don't miss the point, to make sure that they understand fully what he's talking about, what Jesus does next is pretty radical in their setting. There's a child in the house. He grabs that little boy and brings him over. And in verse 37, Jesus says this, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So you lower yourself to serve a child. I think in this moment, Jesus is telling his disciples that in particular, children have a valued place in the kingdom of God, but in general, it is to be our way that we would serve the most vulnerable, the weakest, the voiceless among us. Children in our culture today have great value, great importance. Uh, we, we, we esteem them highly. We love them. They're cute. We goo goo gaga. We do all of that with our kids as we ought to. But in the first century, it wasn't that way. Children were at the bottom of the totem pole. They were not of value to society in general. Uh, no one who was great in the world's eyes then would be found serving children. Not even close. In fact, one of the evidences of their greatness might be that they had children serving them. So Jesus turns the whole concept upside down. If you're going to be great, you've got to be a servant of all. You've got to welcome the weakest, the most vulnerable, the smallest, the voiceless. And when you do this, don't miss what Jesus says. When you welcome them, you welcome me. Not only do you welcome me, but you welcome the one who sent me. In the face of the hurting person, our sacrificial service is where we meet Jesus Christ. Now, it's hard for the church sometimes to wrap our minds around this. We get so distracted by issues of ceremony and decorum that we often forget about the value of the human in front of us. Several, several years ago in a different place, uh, my brother and my sister-in-law came to visit us. It was a Sunday morning. They had a long drive. Uh, my sister-in-law had a large soda to help her make it. And uh, when they got to the church, she walked up to the front door with her large soda in hand, and the greeter, who had some issues that day, said, ma'am, you can't bring that in here. You either have to drink it or throw it away, because we don't allow drinks in the lobby. Thankfully, this was my sister-in-law and not just some random visitor, because my friend at the door forgot to put people first. My friend at the door had misplaced priorities. She put ceremony, decorum, over people. The reality is this, I've, I've never known a soda that didn't have a human carrying it, or a donut that wasn't in the hand of another person made in the image of God, or a cup of coffee that wasn't drunk by someone whom God knew by name and every hair on their head. And so it's to you and I to make sure that our priorities are in line with Christ's priorities. I'm not saying that we turn the sanctuary into a buffet and bring your own nachos and all of that. So don't, let's not extrapolate this to nonsense. <laughs> what I am saying is Jesus puts people first. His church has to put people first. And the weaker, the lower, the more vulnerable, 
the more intentional you and I ought to be in this endeavor. There's many activities you and I might undertake in which we might feel close to Jesus, but Jesus never said, whoever watches a sunrise welcomes me. And he never said, whoever goes to church welcomes me. And he never said, whoever takes communion welcomes me. But he did say, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. It's so ironic that we would put such emphasis, again, on ceremony, on the presence of Christ in some of our activities, and then neglect the communion of sacrificial service of God's people. Can't do that. Jesus sets the tone for us for sacrificial service, lays down his life on the cross. We're to pick up our cross and follow him. So as a follower of Jesus, you ought to live every day with an eye for the other person. Every day. If you're a husband, it ought to define your relationship with your wife. And if you're a wife, it ought to define your relationship with your husband, that you live in service to the other. And as you go about your business and about your day, the person who who gives you your coffee regular and the person who waits on you at the lunch table or the, person, the stranger you ride the elevator with, whoever it is, you live, Christian, you live with your eye out for the sake of the other. To be a servant of all people. To watch your response when the food doesn't come out according to your order or the telemarketer calls your phone for the 80th time. You watch your response to be a servant for others. And if you evaluate your life and you find that you're not in such close proximity to hurting people, vulnerable people, then friend, the, the right thing to do is not just to wait for God to open the door. Brother and sister, the door is wide open. You've got to step through it. You've got to get your life intersected with people who are hurting and broken. This ought to be a defining characteristic of every member of our church. That we can say not only where we worship and why we worship and what we believe, but we could also say on our spiritual resume, here's where I am serving the lowest, the hurting, the broken in society. You've got no shortage of opportunities to connect with refugees who are desperate for an American connection. No shortage of opportunities to connect with homeless and hurting people around us. No shortage of opportunities. But brother and sister, you've got to trust Jesus enough to step through that door to make it happen, to be intentional in this. Do not let this week go by. I challenge you, do not let this week go by that you miss an opportunity to meet Jesus in your sacrificial service to someone else. If you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to pursue downward servanthood. Second component of Christian greatness, according to Jesus, is kingdom-mindedness. Kingdom-mindedness. Now, uh, verse 38 John tells Jesus of an offense that he put a stop to. I think John's expectation is that he'd get an attaboy, good job, you done well. Look at what John says in verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. I think John has a fiery personality. You read through the Gospels and at different places, this guy, he comes in hot quite often. And here's an example of that for sure. What disturbed John, what disturbed all the disciples in this situation was the exercise of Jesus' power in his name by a stranger who hadn't been authorized to do so. That's the beef. This man wasn't a member of Jesus' little group, and he apparently wasn't listening to the disciples when they tried to stop him. And what's ironic here is that in the passage just before this, remember the failure of the disciples to cast out a demon? They just failed at this work, and now they're trying to stop someone who's being successful at it. 
doesn't make any sense at all. Here's what the disciples don't understand in this scene. The name of Jesus is not some magic word that gives automatic power to the person speaking. The name of Jesus has authentic power only when a person joins Jesus in faith and obedience to the will of God. The fact that Jesus' power was active in this unnamed exorcist tells us that this man was a true believer and and he's giving a faithful witness to the kingdom of God. So Jesus responds to John with an important proverb. He tells him in verse 39, don't stop him. And then verse 40, whoever is not against us is for us. And here's how much someone who's not against us is for us. Here's, Here's where that really plays out. Not only does this hold true when you find someone using my name to cast out demons, if they even give you a glass of water in my name, they're on team Jesus. Those are our brothers and sisters. There's a kingdom-mindedness here. John and the disciples are are trying to jealously guard their little authority, their own tiny kingdoms, instead of having the mind of Christ when it comes to cooperation and collaboration, kingdom-mindedness. Here's how this looks in church life so often. It happens a lot more frequently than we might want to admit. Here's what happens. New church lands on the scene experiences rapid growth. Established church raises a nostril at the new church and makes critical, harsh judgments based on methods and insinuations or guesswork. We make harsh judgments on our brothers and sisters and assume they must be doing something wrong in order to grow so fast or to be so popular. So, South Shore Baptist Church, we've got to be careful that we don't fall into this sin or that we don't perpetuate this sin. Of course, there are methods used by other churches that we're convictionally not going to use. That's fine. But we can't be so sinfully smug as to assume that the Lord is more pleased with our methods than theirs. We can't be so sinfully smug as to assume that quick growth is always sinful growth or that slow growth is somehow sanctified growth. We should evaluate. We should operate on biblical convictions. We should do all of that. And when we hear of a Bible-preaching, gospel-proclaiming church experiencing rapid growth, then let us rejoice with them and let us pray for them and let us be their cheerleaders. Because those are our brothers and sisters. This is the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of South Shore Baptist. Kingdom of God. It's a lot bigger than us. So we have to have a kingdom-mindedness God's kingdom, not our kingdom, God's kingdom. We have to be kingdom-minded. That's the path to greatness. So greatness in the Christian life is downward servanthood. It's kingdom-mindedness. Third, it's personal holiness. Personal holiness is so vitally important when it comes to greatness in the kingdom of God. Now, I think it's important to remember this this teaching segment, it feels a little disjointed. It It kind of bounces from topic to topic. But remember that all this exists under the umbrella of greatness. So Jesus is responding to the disciples bickering about who's going to be great. Part of that response is making sure they pay attention to their own sin. They've already called out what they thought was the sin of this unnamed exorcist. We stopped this guy who was abusing your name and your power. And Jesus here tells them, guys... (laughs) You've got plenty of sin of your own to pay attention to. Don't ignore your own sin 
as you drum up fake sin in the lives of others. So Jesus speaks very direct and in a way that probably doesn't feel so warm and inviting to us this morning. Verse 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Who are the little ones that Jesus is speaking of in verse 42? It could be literal children. I think in part it is. But I think in light of the context of Jesus' earlier teaching in this section, he's referring again to those who are lowly and insignificant followers of his, including children, those who are vulnerable to spiritual downfall. So if you cause this spiritual failure of one of Jesus' vulnerable followers, you will face consequences so severe it would have been a mercy for you to have been tied by the neck to a giant millstone and thrown into the sea. Jesus doesn't let up there. He continues to tighten things. He goes on to say that it is better to chop off your sinful hand, to chop off your sinful foot, to pluck out your sinful eye than it is to be thrown into hell. Now, in the translation I read this morning, New International Version, it uses the word hell. Your translation might use the word Gehenna. Gehenna was an actual location outside of the city of Jerusalem. There's a valley to the south, the Valley of Hinnom. And back in the Old Testament, when God's people were at their worst, they set up places of worship to a false god named Molech, in the valley of Hinnom. Here's how you worshipped Molech. Molech's priest would stoke the fires in the altar and you would bring your child to pass through the fires to Molech. God's covenant people sacrificed their children outside the walls of Jerusalem to a make-believe God. We get to 2 Kings and King Josiah brings radical reform. He destroys the altars to Molech in the Valley of Hinnom, and he turned that dark place into a garbage dump. So everyone would bring their trash to the Valley of Hinnom, and it would burn nonstop. And like with every trash dump, there's maggots around all the time. Those maggots never die. That fire's never quenched. Jesus uses that visual to describe the literal horror and and torture of hell, an eternity apart from God. Now, this is where you and I might get a little squeamish. We might say, I'm not not comfortable with this. Doesn't this just belong in in the mouth of fiery street preachers or something like that? No one in the Bible talks more about hell than Jesus. And we do not do well if we try to rationalize it away or just say, oh, this is just extreme speech about oblivion or or non-existence. I think when Jesus speaks about hell, he speaks in very literal and very vivid terms. And those words may sting a bit, but here's what you may need to learn this morning. Grace doesn't always come in sugar-coated words. Sometimes what your heart needs is the stark depiction of the horrors of hell to turn you from your sin and to bring you in repentance back to Jesus Christ. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, 
I want to encourage you to read the words of Jesus slowly and seriously. The decisions we make in this life have eternal ramifications. And one of the possibilities, the sure possibility for those who do not trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation is an eternity in hell, separated for God, conscious, literal torment for all eternity. And we don't delight in that. God's people never amen the idea of hell or rejoice in that. But this is the right and true judgment for those whose sins are not covered by the blood of Christ. So friend, read this slow and read it serious, but don't stop there. After you've read it a few times, I want you to go back to verse 31. And I want you to realize what Jesus has done for you because he loves you. He laid down his life on the cross. At the cross, he, in a sense, suffered hell. He took the wrath of God in full for your sin so that you wouldn't have to. He died in your place. The sinless, perfect God, creator of all things, died in your place so that you could have his life. We read of how awful hell is, and then we read of how incredible the cross is. And friend, that's what brings us in trust and faith to Jesus Christ. So I don't want you just to read these and be scared. I want you to read these words and be compelled by the love of Christ who gave everything for you. If you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, believe that he died in your place and rose from the dead, if you'll trust in him, then he will forgive you for all your sin. He will give you eternal life. He will rescue you from hell once and for all. He will give you a place in his eternal glory. That's his promise to you today. And so here in a little bit at the end of our service, we'll have some friends, they'll stand in this corner, we call them our prayer team, and I'll be floating around and our pastors and other friends will be floating around. You shouldn't leave this room today without knowing that your heart and your eternity belong to Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you to talk to one of those friends or grab me. And if just for some reason you can't this morning, email me today, cody at southshorebaptist.com. Email me, let's get together And let's talk about what eternity looks like, okay? So greatness in the eyes of God is servanthood, it's kingdom-mindedness, it's personal holiness. Final component of Christian greatness is unbreakable unity. Unbreakable unity. Verses 49 and 50 seem like very random phrases. And, And I think they are idioms. Idioms are very hard to translate from one language to another, one culture to another. Even when those cultures are on the same calendar, it's hard But if you put 2,000 years between the idiom and the translation, it makes it even harder. So I'll tell you up front, there is not great agreement as to how these phrases, these three phrases about salt and fire ought to be interpreted. I'll give you what I think are the best ones, and you may do some study on your own and decide to go a different direction, and that's okay. We'll all be in heaven together one day. But here's what I think Jesus is talking about. He gives us three rapid-fire phrases that are connected not by subject but by language. Salt, salt, salt. Fire connects the first phrase to the previous teaching segment on hell. So Jesus says, first of all, verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Who's everyone? I take everyone to mean every follower of his, every believer. Everyone will be salted with fire. What does it mean to be salted? Well, salt is a purifying agent. It is an agent for preservation. 
So I think here Jesus is speaking about purification. Every one of his followers will be purified by fire. What is that fire? It's not hell fire. I think it is persecution fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone who follows the name of Jesus, who denies himself, takes up the cross and follows him, will be purified through persecution, through trials, through hardship. Everyone will face that. That is the norm as followers of Jesus Christ. The next line, verse 50, Jesus says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can, it, how can you make it salty again? So again, salt is a preserving agent in antiquity. In the absence of a refrigerator, you pack your meat in salt. And if the salt isn't able to do what salt's supposed to do, then it's worthless. And so as followers of Jesus, we have this God-given responsibility to be agents of preservation, life-giving agents in a world in rot and decay around us. The church's work is to rescue people from the fires that never die. So as we battle our own sin and serve people, we're maintaining this life-preserving quality. Jesus is warning us not to lose that aspect of our mission. And then the final phrase, Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. When Jesus says have salt in yourselves, I don't think he's talking about a high sodium content necessarily. I think he is being pretty literal though that we're supposed to eat with each other. Have salt in yourselves. Sit down, eat food, have fellowship, enjoy that with one another, and be at peace with each other. How about Jesus putting the great bookend on the end of this? What started out as an argument over greatness ends with Jesus saying, eat some food and be at peace with each other. Have true Christian fellowship on a regular basis. So using these salt idioms, Jesus has told us to be unified in persecution, to be unified in our mission, to be unified in our fellowship. That unbreakable unity is so very different from jostling for greatness or jealously guarding over our positions or searching out the sins of others while we ignore the sins of our own. Let me give you one quick tip for how you can find that kind of unity in our church. I think you need two things in this church. You need rows and you need circles. We need rows like this room where where we gather around the Word of God, we worship together, we get into the Word together, we respond together. We need these rows, but you also need circles. You need a place where you're seeing people eye to eye, gathering around the Word of God, praying together being open and vulnerable, sharing burdens with each other, having salt with one another. You need that circle in your life. Our growth groups are the number one place where that happens in our church. It's not some sanctified program. It's just a a tool that we use to make church smaller so that you know names and your name is known, so that you don't walk through life alone or feel like you're just lost in this room. You need people that you meet with on a regular basis to study the Word of God, to be discipled, to grow, and to share your life with, and for them to share their life with you. You need that. We need this unbreakable unity that comes only from Jesus Christ, people unified around His mission and around His work. So what is it that makes a person great in the eyes of the world? We've already said expertise, accomplishment, acclaim, influence. What is it that makes a person great in the eyes of God? Servanthood? Kingdom-mindedness? Personal holiness? Unity? 
this passage and others like it have a certain sting to them. We've talked about that. The reality is if we measure our lives against this standard Christ has given us, we, we fall short. We don't serve the low and the vulnerable as we should. We, we jealously protect our little kingdoms and make enemies of our brothers and sisters. We don't battle our sin with the seriousness and the vigor we ought to. And we aren't unified with each other in this unbreakable way Jesus has described. So what it might feel like this morning is that Jesus puts the bar in front of you and says, hey, just jump higher, do better, work harder. But the disciples, their problem wasn't that they didn't work harder, it's that they didn't believe right. Theirs wasn't a work problem, it was a faith problem, and that's what it is for us as well. Jesus isn't telling you just to do better and to do more and to work harder. We have to remember verse 31, which in this setting on this day was future, but for you and I on our day is past. We know what Christ has done. He went to the cross. He died. Three days later, he rose again just as he said he would. Jesus goes there because of our sinful failures. And then he rose from the dead because he's God and he loves you so much. So today, Jesus isn't telling you to work harder, but he's telling you to trust him more. He fulfilled all that's required for your salvation. And so it isn't yours to work, it is yours to trust. And it's that trust, that faith in Jesus that will save you from hell, that will change your heart towards people, that will strengthen your heart against sinful temptation, and that will make family out of people from all walks of life. So friend, don't be paralyzed by your sin this morning. Don't be terrified by a depiction of sin's punishment but rather in joy and urgency. Come to Jesus and be reborn or be renewed in his grace to you. Let's pray together. To you, the great God, we give praise and honor and glory forevermore. No one is great besides you. No one's magnificence compares to you. All glory is yours. And in your glory and in your might, in your majesty, you have made a way for us sinful people to be saved. You did so at great cost to yourself. We've seen downward servanthood portrayed vividly by the Son who came and went all the way to the cross. So, Father God, this morning, I ask that you would open the eyes, awaken faith in my friends today who don't know you as their Savior. Lord, I pray that the, your depiction of hell in this passage would really bother us. Um, it would bother us because we find that without Christ, we have no protection from it. Lord, I pray that the picture of the cross would compel us and lead us to a place of faith and trust. Today, would you bring new life to my friend who would trust in you as their Savior? I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that we would pursue greatness in your eyes and according to your way, that we would serve, that we would combat our sin, that we would have minds that look to the kingdom and not to our own little cliques. Lord, that we would lock arms together as we advance against the enemy who would see your precious creation thrown into hell.
Father, strengthen my brothers and sisters so that we might be called great by you, that we would live for the other the way Christ gave everything for us. Lord, lead us in that way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.